All right, so Friday night, I went to see Black Panther for the second time, uh, two times for me. And so when you go to see a movie a second time, what I noticed is that you, like, you begin to see a more detailed aspect of a story. And whether that is going to a movie theater and watching something two, three, four, seven, twelve times because it's your thing, uh, or it's reading a great book over and over and over that you've gone through multiple times. I find that for, for my brain, what I do when I watch something in multiple times, I start to see the story through different characters' eyes. And so I get to experience what's happening from a different lens, whether it's the main character at first, and then maybe that trusted um, cohort that's going with them, to the nemesis, to then in some place you end up in the details where you hear that voice of a mother who's sending her son off to something, or you see that, that grandparent who's holding back when they want to say something else. And the more that we get into a story, the more we see that there is depth and that there is this conversation that's happening beyond the first cut. And last week when we were talking through Daniel chapter 5, Steve kept mentioning it as this is a deeper cut. What's interesting for me is that that out of the book of Daniel, that was the story I'd actually heard the most. I don't know what was happening in Maysville, Kentucky in the early 90s, but there was a continual conversation about the writing on the wall. Like that was the story that I knew and that I had read multiple times, maybe because I was one of those arrogant church kids that thought, I already know Daniel in the lion's den. I already know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, there's writing on the wall. Cool. Let me read that. And so when he said deeper cut, I thought, oh, this is the one, like, huh, I've read this a lot. Yet, in the reading of that story and the conversation last week around Belshazzar and Daniel and Belshazzar's vision and God's interaction into his life, I still found that there was a different voice. But for me, the voice last week that I heard the most was not really even in the chapter. It was the voice of Nebuchadnezzar. And the story that God had given him that for some reason had not been passed on to his son that he missed the story. Because at the end of chapter 4, we have this great king of Babylon who has created these hanging gardens and has this, na- this nation that is leading everything and this massive gold statue of himself turned into the lowliest of animals grazing in a field and returning to his kingdom and making sure everyone knows that there is one true God and this truest God is the God of Daniel and Israel and that he should have honor because his endures forever. And then we went into this chapter of the writing on the wall last week where the very next generation, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, is spending most of his time partying with the resources that have been given to him by the greatness of his father. But he didn't take the lesson with him. He didn't take the story. It was prophesied that something's going to happen to us. We're going to lose. Another nation is going to take over us. And we have found that there is a God who is actually greater than all the gods that we serve. My dad even mentioned it, but I ignored it. And before we dive into Daniel 6 this Sunday, which will be the last of our our Daniel series, 
I just wanted to pause at the end of Daniel chapter 5 because rereading it again last week and listening to Steve teach, I was reminded that there was something that happened at the end of chapter 5 that positions us before we move forward. And I wanted to take a look at Daniel chapter 5 verses 30 and 31. It says, That very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. It's this transition two verses from one nation to another that I thought, I can't move past here because I keep believing for myself that as a new generation, as a next generation leader, as a church futurist, as someone who likes to take things forward, I keep believing that there is this gap between older generations that I shouldn't listen to because the context has changed. The game is different. The conversation is different than than my father and his generation. And there are some times that I don't look back because I don't want to put inappropriate blame on generations that came behind me. I think at times our generation is a little bit guilty of that. That we look at the generations behind us and go, well, this is my dad's fault. All of our dads can't carry the weight of all of our presence and our futures. Right? They, they can't sustain that. But there are moments that I find like in these verses that I look and go, but did I learn the lesson? That very night, Belshazzar lost his life and his kingdom because he had chosen not to learn the lesson of the generation that came behind him. Not that he didn't do what his dad wanted him to do. Not, it wasn't about him not following the rules or living up to the expectations of his father. It was simply that he didn't look at the story that his father's life had written and learn a lesson from it so that his story could produce something different in an outcome. Instead, he drank it all up to the point where there's just a hovering hand on the wall. And he's like, dude, tell me what that means. And more wine. And so before we go into this last little narrative um, of Daniel, I just wanted you to pause with me and think on that. Is there a lesson from the generation that's come before you that if you miss, it could lead to this shift? Or you don't have what you have anymore. Because the stories that came before us are as important as the stories that we're writing today. Because they have something to teach us. So I spent my last week reflecting on my dad, my relationship with my dad. Some things that he's taught me in life. Some things that I want to lean into. And some other things that I go, you are teaching me about the Cox men. And I need to know some things. Because I want the generation that my children are bringing to have a different story to be able to tell. And so I can't ignore the story before me. There's also this aspect of rereading narratives and reading them over and over that gives us insight into the development of story process. And being able to see that over time some things change, but most often the things that don't change, the things that stay consistent are the storylines that cannot cease to exist without the person ceasing to exist. Here's what I mean by that. Is that there are some people that if you ask them to stop going out for a run every morning, 6 to 20 miles a day, they cease to be who they are. 
Their personality changes. They drastically change in dynamic. I can tell on my own like journey that it, on the weeks that I don't get to play soccer during lunch, I have these things like I just take lunch breaks and play soccer on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The weeks that I have to schedule a meeting on a Tuesday instead of being able to play soccer on a Tuesday influences my Tuesday afternoon meetings. I, f- I feel terrible for the people that have to meet with me. When I had to meet through lunch on Tuesday, and by 3 o'clock, I am not the same person in the meeting than I normally am. And because my routine is off, and things that pour into me and give me some like, energy has changed, sometimes I change. When you look at a story and you see these are the things that are consistent and never change, they're probably the aspects of the story that have influenced the result. That's Daniel 1 through 6. When you look at the consistencies of Daniel from 15 years old showing up as an exile into Babylon and having to be lorded over by a king instead of being in the royal family of kings, you see this consistency that he always blessed the Lord. He stuck to the practices of his religion in opposition to practices of a Babylonian ritual whenever he had to. He prayed consistently. He lived in community. And he served in spite of agreement or disagreement with where he was. He didn't view his exile into another kingdom as an oppression. He viewed it as an opportunity to serve as he followed his God. And that was consistent all the way into chapter 6. And so 70 years later after the the book, our first connections of the book of Daniel. This is about 70 year gap. We have Daniel going through yet another transformation of kingdom. He's experienced Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. He's experienced Belshazzar's kingdom. And now he has Darius the Mede coming in. And soon he will actually experience Cyrus the Persian. So he will have been in the royal kingdom of four different kings with four different styles of leadership. And he remains consistent through all of them and ends up in a pit of lions. That's our conversation today. A refresher. If you look at the first king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, here is this um, arrogant conqueror is what I would call him. His arrogance was his issue, but he was a great conqueror. He had established this kingdom that even when God had initiated a conversation with him to say, humble yourself, he went on top of his own rooftops and looked at him and was like, yeah, I don't think I need to. It's pretty awesome what I see. And yet Daniel endured. Belshazzar, I would call him the entitled entertainer. He's the son that looked at him and was like, we have all of this? If you look at some of the the writings about how the Medes entered into Babylon, you will notice that it was because Belshazzar was taking the kingdom resources and satisfying himself with them instead of shoring up the, the um, resources that were coming into the kingdom. The Medes attacked the water source and they stopped water flow to Babylon. But Belshazzar didn't really pay much attention to it because there was still plenty of wine. There was still enough for him to be satisfied instead of shoring up what he should have taken care of. And so here's this entitled entertainer that ends up dying because he didn't listen. 
And as Daniel chapter 6 starts, we'll notice that Darius, this authority from the Medes, is really just a frightened old man. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king, and here's the important part of the verse, might suffer no loss. So Darius comes in to establish a new kingdom, and as he comes in, instead of looking and seeing, how do we prepare this kingdom to go forward, which is the kingdom that Daniel entered into with Belshazzar, as it was being built up of, they're having competitions between warriors to see who's the strongest. They're trying to figure out how to be a more conquering kingdom. He doesn't choose that. He doesn't build his kingdom around entertainment. He doesn't look around and say, bring everyone into my presence and have them entertain me and let's throw parties and let's enjoy our spoils like Belshazzar. Instead, he comes in and says, what is the best system that I can put in place so that there are very few problems and no one tries to kill me too? It says he's about 62 years old when he takes over here. So maybe he's looked and seen this illustration of like, kings die. And usually not of old age. Usually something happens to them. Usually they're overthrown. This is how it works. So how do I lead this nation without being overthrown? And so he establishes a fear-based leadership system from the very beginning of his kingdom. And that's important as we read through Daniel 6 because we see that in Daniel 6, fear-based leadership creates this fear-based rebellion. If you're afraid as a leader, then we're afraid of your leadership. And we want you out. The leaders around the king do not like his setup. They also do not like that Daniel is over them. It seems like over 70 years, Daniel's consistent presence and his peaceful demeanor and his ability to interpret the things that no one else can interpret and make them look pretty foolish has worn thin. And so when he is granted one of these top roles, some would even say in this text that he was granted leadership over the other two officials that were with him, and everyone reported to him that the leadership had worn thin on him as a leader. But more than likely, their their following had worn thin on this fear-based leader of Darius, and they were trying to strike him down. And they saw Daniel as the one that would be the martyr that they could use in order to destroy the king. As the text unfolds, you see that Darius actually likes Daniel. Daniel, for some reason, has been able to connect with Darius more than likely because Daniel is accountable. He's strong in leadership and he continually serves. And if you're a fear-based leader, you like those men and women because you can go, oh, You won't surprise me. You're not going to rebel against me. And you always get your work done. I will give you a race. Please stand close to me. So Darius likes the way that Daniel is leading with him. So the other leaders take a look around and say, well, you have to strike him. Because if we take Daniel, then we can get to Darius. And if we can get to Darius, then we can overthrow this whole thing. Daniel chapter 6 then says that they sought out to find anything in Daniel's character that they could strike down. The Hebrew there of the word find actually illustrates that they went out and they tried it, but they knew that they wouldn't succeed because they had known Daniel for so long that they knew they weren't going to get at his character. 
and then they failed. And then they looked at his community, and they failed. And then they decided, we're going to only be able to attack his law and his religious commitment to his God. That's the only way that we can mess with this. So what could we create that would take the law and change it so that we could force Darius's hand? And they came up with the idea that Darius should enact a law that you can only worship him. If you know anything about the Medes or the Persians, you know that this law is insane because they worshiped a multitude of gods. So to enact a law in, for Medes, Persians, and Babylonians to say the only God that you can worship would be the king would be to say death to just about everybody. Because they were all worshiping multiple gods at multiple times in their life. They're, like this is just the biggest mess of worship ever. Everyone has their own avenger and they can worship them as they please. And so, Daniel realizes very quickly, this isn't about all of them. I bet they don't, I bet they don't um, prosecute anyone else. I'm pretty sure this is about Israel and me. You can tell that because in his response, as soon as it is enacted as law, and Darius whines about the law that he enacted that he didn't mean to enact. And as you look through the writer of Daniel 6, you'll notice that the writer does not really like Darius. He thinks he's a wimp. And he keeps putting this little passive-aggressive words in of just like, and so when the weak king, when the king who had no power over his own kingdom, when the king was saddened by the law that he enacted, it keeps going back to this weakness of Darius, of this fear-based leadership that says, I'm so sorry, I couldn't have done anything. And you're like, you're the only one that could do something. Sometimes as Americans, we can relate, right? It says in verse 10, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So Daniel knows, you've cre- uh, here we go again. Here's another opportunity. This feels like my friends who are going to go into a fiery furnace. You're trying to pick us out. What should I do? I should go home and I should worship. There's an amazing amount of detail in this text that because Steve's communion meditation was so long, we don't have time to get into today. I'm just kidding. It was great. Martin Luther autographed. Will you autograph one for us to put here? Sweet. That'd be awesome. Because I think we should, that was my first thought was, we should have a Steve Carr autographed Bible here somewhere. Um, and we should put it up front. So no, actually there's so much depth here that it would take us a whole, an, an entire sermon series to get through a lot of the context that starts to happen after the law is enacted and what Daniel is doing in his upper room. But here are the basics. As he goes into this upper room, he opens the windows because there was a belief in a lot of rabbinic literature that by connecting to creation, your prayer will deepen its connection to God. We think that comes from like all these different, it doesn't. It comes from this belief system that we worship the God of creation. So he would open his windows to connect to the God that created all of this. But also he would open his window that was facing Jerusalem 
where the temple was being rebuilt and hope was physically being constructed in front of him. Going home continued to feel like an option for Daniel as he sees through his window his homeland and the construction of a temple that he is then going, oh, but there it is, but there it is, but there it is, because the temple represented the place where man dwelt with God. So he would go into his room and he would open the window and three times a day he would pray toward Jerusalem and he was persecuted for it. Interesting how over time stories get flipped, right? Like that sounds like another group of people that get persecuted for praying three times a day toward a city. Interesting. And he just went and prayed because he knew that the law had been enacted for him. And so he went home and said, oh, let's just start this. I'm 80 something now. Like, well, let's not just mess around until you catch me. How about I just walk home? I open the window. I start my prayer. More than likely, there would be some singing in that prayer. And and they're like, is he really going to make it this easy? Like, we're just going to bust him right now. And Daniel's like, yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for 70 years. I'm not changing because you have a new king who's more frightened than ever and you hate me more than ever because I can interpret visions and you can't. My friends walked through fire and yours died in it. My king lives forever. Yours got drunk on wine and ate grass in a field. I'm just going to go pray to him. And most of us have grown up on the story of what happens next, right? Like we... Daniel is taken before the king, and the king is stressing himself out of, can I get him out of this? Is, this? is it possible to get him out? All the king would have had to do to get Daniel out of this scenario would have been to look at all of the other advisors and say, who did you worship this morning when you woke up? Which god? Point to the statue. Tell me about which of these other gods that you worshiped in addition to me this morning do you want me to convict you to? Because there were multiple gods being worshipped at the time. But Darius doesn't want to make a decision. He just wants to look like the god or the king who could make a decision. But his hands were tied. And so it saddened the king. And they reminded him, don't forget, you're the king of the Medes. And the Medes and Persians have a law that says once a law is enacted, the law can't be taken away. So you have to punish him. So Daniel is taken to what we've often called the den of lions. It's a pit. I studied a little bit to see if that was a thing, right? Like, do lions get, like, are there pits of lions in the Middle East everywhere that are utilized by kingdoms? And there's not a lot. There is, however, a lot of biblical relationship between lion and God's story. David says before, in order to, uh, to go and fight Goliath, David says, I, the reason that I can go beat this giant is because when a lion would try to attack a sheep, I would break its neck. That guy's a boss, man. That's like, okay, all right. Jeremiah had a, a moment with a lion. Samson killed a lion. With the jawbone of a donkey, I believe. And with his bare hands. He's alright too, right? WrestleMania's got nothing on them. It's for you, Springsteen. 
There are lions throughout Scripture. One of the biggest ones is in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, where it says that Christ will return as the Lion of Judah. In addition to that, in Genesis chapter 49, when the, when the nations, when the, the tribes are being kind of defined, the word for Judah in that is that Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lion is who dares to rouse him. That actual, the, the tribe of Judah was illustrated as the lion tribe of Israel. Daniel is from the tribe of Judah. Interestingly enough. So it says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 16 through 18, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, pause there really quickly. When Darius says serve continually, he wasn't talking about to the Medes and the Persians and to the Babylonians. He was actually saying that Daniel had taken on the role of priest to the Israelites that were in exile. He was performing weddings and funerals and ministering and judging and playing the role of what would be a priest in exile to those who wanted to stay whole as a part of the nation of Israel and not join in the traditions of the pagan nations around them. Darius is actually giving him honor of that, of saying, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his, of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep f- fled from him. Again, that's the writer making fun of him, actually going, hey, <laughs> he went to bed and fasted, right? Like, if you think about that, it's the hardest fast in the world, right? Like, after I have my snack, and then I go to sleep, and I fast through the night. Like, those are some really hard fasts. But again, it ties him back to the Pharaohs and the Nebuchadnezzars and said that sleep left him. He was tormented by the decisions being made on his behalf. I got caught this week thinking about lions, Because there's not a whole lot about Daniel in this passage. Right? Daniel prayed. Daniel serves continually. Daniel gets thrown in a pit. And the pit is sealed with lions. This is where like, the, the practical side of my brain and then this like, miraculous story part don't often match up. How does a man get dropped into a pit of lions and nothing happens? Right? Like, Is it just this spirit that shows up in there and is it literal or is it metaphoric there are some in the the midrash of rabbinic teaching that would say this is a metaphor that's happening here because we don't have a lot of lion pits in the middle east this is actually a conversation happening metaphorically i would say it works literally or metaphorically the same No matter what, Daniel came out of a pit of darkness where there were lions, figuratively or literally. The figurative approach to this says that Daniel was thrown into a pit of lions where his enemies would have been there. Those those who were convicting him were in the pit and they weren't allowed to do anything to him. That it wasn't actual lions, but it was the lions who were trying to take his life and that they weren't allowed to hurt him that night or they couldn't bring themselves to. Interesting take. 
I'll go with the literal, these were actually, like, Mufasa's friends were there. And that Daniel is dropped into this pit of lions. And so I started to study the lions. So here's a pit of lions in complete darkness. Is it possible that they just didn't know Daniel was there? Right? That he drops in. He finds a little crack in the rock. And these lions are in there. And it's completely pitch dark. So they don't know. But we know that like, if we've seen the ghost in the darkness and watched Val Kilmer in that mess... We know that lions prowl through the night, right? But it's because of their eyes that they can prowl through the night. Did you know, maybe you did, maybe you're way smarter than me, did you know that behind the eye of a lion is almost like a mirror, a reflective lens, that it takes light that comes into its eyes, reflects it back out, so that the retina can catch the light twice? That's kind of cool. So you'll notice that nocturnal animals, when you shine a light in their faces, right, you won't see the lion, but you might catch that possum, right, when you flick a light on it, it, it looks like its, its eyes at night are like glowing back at you or are ready to just see through you and destroy you. It's because they also have this reflective mirror in the back of their eyes that when your light shines at their eyes, it comes in, hits the mirror, and reflects back out so that their eyes can catch it twice, and that gives them night vision. That the light stays in their eyes. So here's what's happening with these lions. You have that one? Yeah, that one's nice. Those eyes are awesome. You'll also notice that lions have this little white thing underneath their eyes. It makes them look super cool. You see the next one up there. That, there's, so there's like a little white strip that's under the eyes. Lions were created that during the day, whenever light was coming at them, that it would catch on that white strip and soften it so that it could go back into the eye to capture more light, to maximize it, so that at night they have more light in their eyes, which causes them to see in the dark. And you're wondering, no, Stephen, I did not talk about light entering into the darkness being the communion meditation and part of the message, but that's where Jesus is going. Daniel is dropped into a pit of darkness with the one animal that his tribe is called. And he is the Lion of Judah and he has all of the light in his eyes. And then if you look at the response of Daniel when he comes back out, it says in verse 21 through 24, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. Because I had light in a pit of darkness. It says that the lions did not eat Daniel because he was found blameless. Not because he was hiding in a rock. Not because, not because the angel came in and just shut the mouths of the lions and said, you aren't allowed to touch him. But he said, the lions' mouths were shut because I was found blameless. The only way anyone is ever found blameless, though, is through Jesus, right? Like, we're, like that's kind of where we are in the story, is that the only way that you, anyone is found completely blameless is through the work of the light that entered the darkness, and the darkness could never overcome it. So we're not in a stretch, and rabbinic midrash actually tries to petition this on behalf of the Messiah as well, of saying, this is a messianic text saying that the lion's mouths are shut because the lion of Judah has control over the lions, and when they see light, they stay back because they claim the light. 
And then what was happening in the pit is this example of Christ and preparing the world to understand that the lions, the lions are actually part of the kingdom too. And they see the light. And they protect the light. And so when Daniel comes out of the pit and the king is going, are you kidding me? You're here? Not sure if there was like this, you know, Rafiki like lifted him out of the pit, how that happened. But when he came out, the king's response is dumbfoundedness again, but it gives him confidence. And in the response, Darius looks at those who threw Daniel in the pit and said, not going to happen twice. You got your way. You twisted the law. You threw him in there. And now there's a law that says if you've worshipped any other god like but me, then you can go in the pit. And he looked at them and was like, hey, you are going in the pit instead now. And what's worse, because he's, he doesn't really like follow Jesus or anything. He's not, not a nice guy. He says, go get your wives and your kids too. That's like that. That part, that's not okay, right? Like, I mean, we, we gloss over these things sometimes that we look at like, well, that's just how it was back then. We can't use that anymore, right? Like it's 2018. We should stop doing that. But we look at it and go, but the, so the king's response, they save one guy and he comes out of the pit and the king's response is, you did this to me. Get in and go get your wives and your kids and they're going to go play with Simba too. Here we go. And they all go in. Don't even, I, I don't know that you want to take your mind to the sounds and things that were going to come out of that pit after that happened. And none of them made it back out. Why? Because lions see light. In that pit, the lions represent the light. And there was no light. It was filled with darkness And the king responds at the end in Daniel chapter 6, verse 25 through 27. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. As we finish these first six chapters, this narrative of Daniel, my, my personal takeaway was, was just this, that I could be anxious around these conquerors that I read about a lot. I could be seduced into that realm of that entitled entertainer world. I could be afraid of not living up to my leadership expectations. Or I could be consistent that the God who endures forever and ever is a God of light and his light enters into darkness and the darkness is never overcome it even in a pit full of lions, even in a fiery furnace, even in untranslatable dreams, even in exile, even in strife, 
that in six chapters, the one truth is that the Lord endures forever. And his ways are great. And I could judge these three kings. Or I could identify some of my own tendencies to be like them. And instead, I could push toward a consistent pursuit of prayer and service like Daniel. And I think that's what gets us through. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for being the God of the lion. That we create eyes that reflect light in such a way to capture it and see in darkness. I thank you for being the God of Daniel who reminds us that our continual service of you and our commitment to seek you brings us blameless before your throne because of the Lion of Judah, because of who you are. And I pray that I would be more like the character of Daniel this week than the character qualities I see in these kings. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.